Mikowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. And for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there. And together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. Folks, it is good to be back. I hope this finds you well. This episode, I have a really, truly great conversation for you. A conversation that went places I was not expecting. But it functions as both education and cautionary tale. This episode, we're talking to horror novelists Steve Stred and Andrew Piper, both of whom are homegrown Canadian talent. As it turns out, Steve is actually from a small town not very far from my own, and that was totally unknown to me when I first approached him. It was just one of those happy coincidences. In fact, the coincidence extends so far as to Steve having given one of my cousins a ride home years ago. And, uh, we just discovered it through the process of talking on Twitter. It's kind of funny. You know, we, we like to joke in Canada that we get kind of peeved when Americans assume we all know each other. And then you have stories like me and Steve's where, you know, sometimes that seems, well, seems fairly accurate. Between the two of them, Steve and Andrew have written some incredible stuff and stuff that really is in some ways based in fact, which when you consider that they write in the horror genre is, well, it's, it's kind of scary <laughs> and it makes for really great conversation. For example, in order to research his Father of Lies series, which are a series of novellas about a cult, Steve actually joined an online cult and spent four and a half years as part of it. And that brings me to something I don't normally do on this show. That is a disclaimer. If you are squeamish, if you are easily offended or grossed out, uh, and and not, not by when I say easily offended, I, I don't mean by tossed off comments, which are in bad taste. I mean, by subject matter, which is quite challenging. I, I would suggest skipping this one just because there is some discussion of violence, which is quite unpleasant. Andrew as well. Andrew has done some fascinating research into the paranormal particularly in connection to the White House. And funny enough, these things have combined to make for probably the most uh, spooky episode of the show yet. And of course, if you've been a longtime listener, you know that I'm also the host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. But this show is typically my outlet for non-spooky related topics. This is sort of where I come to talk books and and movies and, and music and all these great things. But On this episode, the streams just converge, and it is truly a conversation I will not forget soon, and I suspect neither will you. Before we get there, though, just a reminder that if you want access to ad-free versions of the episodes, for $2 a month, you can sign up at patreon.com slash largelythetruth. That's patreon.com slash largelythetruth for ad-free episodes, 
$2 a month gets you in the door. And sometimes there are little bonus goodies as well. For example, there is an additional 20-some minutes to this conversation that will be available to patrons only. And if you like the stranger topics that come up on this episode, those extra minutes are things you're going to want to hear. So, again, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash largely the truth. And finally, if you have any questions about what you hear on this show, come find me on the Repod app. You can download that from either the Google Play or iOS stores. Just search for Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. We have a little room there. I'm always available to answer questions, chat about the show, or just shoot the shit about your favorite podcasts. Again, that's on the Repod app, and you can download that from both the Google Play and iTunes stores. Oh, and one more thing. Recently, I've begun co-hosting the live web stream Weird Together with Dr. Joseph Camo. He is an associate professor of sociology. And that show is, again, a live YouTube video stream where we talk about the latest and greatest in paranormal entertainment. Our next stream will be on Tuesday, April 5th, where we will be talking about the brand new horror film, The Scary of 61st. And I am looking forward to that. That's hosted on the Ghost Story Guys YouTube channel, and you'll find a link to that in the show notes. All right. Now, with all that housekeeping out of the way, it's time to sit back, relax, and reach out to Canadian horror novelists Steve Stred and Andrew Piper. My guests tonight are Canadian horror novelists Steve Stred and Andrew Piper. Andrew Piper's first novel, Lost Girls, released in 1999, was a New York Times bestseller, and in the years since, he has not slowed down one bit. Now author of 10 novels, including 2020's The Residence, and winner of both the Arthur Ellis Award for Best First Novel and the International Thriller Writers Award for Best Hardcover, Andrew's latest, the Audible original Oracle, narrated by actor Joshua Jackson, arrived in August of last year to stellar reviews. Steve Stred is the splatterpunk-nominated author of more than a dozen horror novels and novellas, including the Father of Lies series, Wagon Buddy, and Peace of Me. His latest book, The Harrowing and Horrifying, Wilderness Survival Story Mastodon, arrived on January 28th of this year. Gentlemen, welcome to Largely the Truth. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure having you here. I, I, I love talking to everybody, but it's a particular privilege for me to get to talk to Canadian artists because I don't... I just don't think we pay enough attention to our arts community. So this is always fun for me. Well, Frank, they couldn't agree more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, Steve, you know, um, you and I have been chatting uh, off and on via DM since we first made contact. Yep. And after reading, you know, some of your books, I, I can safely say that that old cliche about the most horrifying things being written by the nicest people is true. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> because, man, I was not prepared for some of the things I read in Mastodon or in the Fathers of Lies books, Father of Lies books. Yeah. I, I learned some stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. Probably not good stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, it's well-written stuff. We'll say that. It's, it, it's oh, uh, haunting, haunting, well-written stuff. So, gents, I thought it would be great, uh, since we have the, the privilege of, of both of you here, you know, we were talking a little bit off-air about the fact that, you know, we've, we've got two, two guys who started their careers at very different times in publishing. And, you know, uh, Andrew, I was reading an interview with you where you talked about getting a, a fairly significant advance for Lost Girls back in 1999. And I'm kind of curious, how has that, how has that evolved? It's a really interesting question. And it's very, um, it, it is quite sort of sweeping. I, I, I could go on at length. I, I promise I won't. But, you know, I think the you know, the, the, the changes have been numerous and massive so that, you know, traditional publishing, conventional, big, big five publishing 
it's always been doom and gloom. You talk to any publisher and they're always sort of like, oh, you know, it's over. Party's over. We're done. We're cooked. No one reads anymore. And here we are. You know, we're still here. I'm still here. The people still read. Arguably, people are buying more books and reading more than ever. So it's a matter of how the material is delivered. That's changed a lot. And so whether it's the advent of e-readers, you know, which was, again, supposed to kill print publishing, it didn't. Right. Um, and now with the advent of more and more podcasts, audiobooks, uh, audio originals, uh, audio dramas, um, that's actually given new, breathed new life, I think, in many ways into both independent and conventional publishing and how to, you know, the platforms that we can present the work on. It's actually a pretty good time to be writing and publishing horror, whether, again, it's independently or in the mainstream presses. But, yeah, it's the days of kind of like, you know, um, going away, writing a novel, giving it, giving it to your agent, the agent goes away and, and maybe, you know, sort of comes back with an advance that would be sufficient to, you know, make your living writing fiction, which was always sort of, you know, a dream, but, an, you know, an, an attainable dream. That remains probably as elusive now as it was, you know, when I started. Interesting. So not necessarily more so. I wouldn't say more so. You know, the harder part, I know breaking in feels really hard if you're, if there's a listener, you know, right now who's like, look, I just want to break in and it's really hard. No doubt. It's hard. There's a lot of people who want to make their living, you know, creating their, their, their stuff. Um, and with that competition, there comes a winning, a winnowing, you know, uh, a difficulty of how many people get to do that. But I think the, frankly, the even what has changed uh, over the last you know, 25, 30 years of publishing is that we used to support our writers more like so, so that once you attained a certain um, platform or level, if you have a couple books that were well received, maybe they didn't sell that well, but you're, you had publishers that would stick with you, maybe, you know, three, four five books. You had a few swings before you maybe, you know, got kicked out. Now, yes, it's hard to break in, but there's some people who do break in in a splashy way. But if that doesn't pay out, you know, if, if you don't sell sufficiently to justify that initial advance, then you're out. So you get, you get kicked out quicker. So it's, oh, right. it's, it's always been hard to get in. But I think what's harder now is to sustain a career, certainly in the, in the mainstream publishing sense. Right. And so, Steve, you came in to writing uh, professionally via direct sales, right? You published through Kindle Direct? That's right. Yeah. Well, originally that would have been back with um, CreateSpace before Amazon purchased CreateSpace and, and made it all as their Kindle Direct publishing and their print on demand. Without this technology and without these avenues available to you, do you think that the, the current wave of, say, Splatterpunk and Splatter Horror, do you think that would be as, as vibrant as it is now? Because I'll, I'll be honest, I wasn't really aware of it uh, prior to starting this show, but I've since met a lot of very, very talented people who are working in a genre that, well, qu quite frankly, scares the shit out of me. And, uh, yeah. but, but also is, is very, very well written. And I wonder, would there have been space for that, do you think, uh, with traditional publishing? I would say no for traditional publishing, but there's always been small press, right? Like that's always right. been something that's, that's kicked around. And even if, even if we look back to, and I'm probably going to get my, my years wrong. So apologies to those who will listen to this, but I want to say zebra um, paperbacks were out in the seventies. And then in the eighties, there was kind of that big horror boom. And, and, you know, I think for them, that was that, that small press, even though I know they sold in, in, you know, traditional press numbers, 
But I think in that case, there's always been that area that, you know, you could, you could find a place for it. I just don't know if the scope or the reach to get to a lot of those readers would exist. You know, like if it was purely a, if we got rid of all digital ebook stuff, because, you know, right now, um, I, Godless is one that's kind of growing in scope for extreme horror, which is a purely an ebook only place. You know, if you got rid of a lot of that, as an independent author, it'd be tough to do print on demand or, you know, to buy that stock and have it here and then try to sell it out. Oh, sure. um, if, you didn't, if you didn't have a, you know, a global massive Amazon, right? Like, it's just, that's the reality of, of it is that, the internet for sure has helped a lot of this, but then in the terms of the reach, you know, I think it's un, untouchable in that sense. Right. And I don't know if I, if I can pose a question to Andrew, has he noticed anything changing in terms of when you talk about marketing your book and is it going into brick and mortar first before they focus on Amazon or is it pretty much just it's being released? Um, that's a good question. I think a lot of that is shrouded from the author in, you know, mainstream pr- uh, publishing, whether it's by design or just sort of that's a side effect of, you know, people working within a publishing company themselves are siloed and work in there, you know, whether it's publicity, marketing, sales, they're kind of not, not, not ignorant of what the other side of the wall is doing, but they're so focused on what they're doing. And so the, the author is kind of, I, I certainly this has been true in so many ways uh, throughout my career, it's like the author's the last to know, you know, whether the book is doing well or whether it's bombing or whether you've gotten an an offer from a film producer to option it. Typically it's like all that's worked out and then like, oh yeah, we should really tell Andrew. Yeah, I guess we should call Andrew. So (laughs) um, I used to kind of get more upset about that. I used to be more like, Hey, why, how, I want to be more involved. You got to tell me uh, what's going on. What are the numbers? And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just laziness, but I've become more kind of um, accepting of, of my own powerlessness. <laughs> and so when it comes to those things, right. and so I'm kind of like, I get kind of more, I've, I've become Zen is wrong, but I've become kind of just more focused on the work at hand and just kind of throw up my hands and kind of like, you know, when this goes out of the world, well, one word, however it goes out into the world, its fate will fall, you know, well outside my reach. And, and so that, that might be just a long way of saying I've given up, but, <laughs> I, you know, I'm pretty ignorant of the process now. Since you mentioned the work and you mentioned adaptations, there is an adaptation of your latest uh, print novel, uh, The Residence, currently streaming on Discovery Plus. I believe it's a Demon in the White House, right? Right. That's right. Yeah. It's a, it was an interesting project insofar as it, uh, The Residence is a novel, so it's a work of fiction, but it is a work of fiction based on some actual history. So namely the, the Pierce administration, which is the Pierce presidency uh, in the United States in the 19th century, which is an often overlooked and, and for good reason overlooked single term American president and the supernatural or at least potentially supernatural events that occurred during their time in the White House. So the, the, the producers were like, oh, yeah, this could be a feature film, but feature films are tough because you need someone to give you 5 or 10 or $50 million. Or this is because it kind of bestrides both fact and fiction. We partnered with Radical Media, which is a, a documentary-making co- production company that specializes in exactly those, these kind of hybrid documentaries. So 
Demon in the White House is involves um, recreations and dramatizations that are more or less from the novel, but marries them to people to speak to the real history of that moment. And then also supernatural experts, uh, you know, uh, mediums, uh, people who are, 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 you know, demonologists to kind of speak to the supernatural element. So it's kind of a a three-pronged hybrid documentary. So it's kind of unusual. Fascinating. And you're listed as an executive producer on that. Were you able to have much of a, a guiding hand in how the production evolved or were you mostly giving it your blessing and just sort of stepping back to see, see what form it took? Well, certainly on the production side, stepping back, but you know, I didn't have an active role in that. Although this is the, they were making it in the middle of the height of COVID of and uh, God bless them. But I was supposed to you know, fly down to LA to be a a talking head and expert in the, in the, in the show, which I would have loved to have done, but it was just too, too freaky at that time. Sure. But mostly my executive producer expertise was, uh, you know, provided in the form of my research into the pierces and, and also the research I had done into the white house as a, as a haunted house. So the many strands and particulars and overlooked incidents, true, true historical incidents, that have occurred in the White House that have a supernatural aspect to it. So I was kind of in-house supernatural White House expert. That is fascinating. I wonder, how did you get started on that track? What made you think, I mean, obviously there have been a number of horrors taking place in the White House over the last four years, but um, (laughs) I'm curious, what made you think this is a haunted house and this is something that I, I should investigate? What was the genesis of that? I was not looking for it. I was, uh, I was noodling around, you know, as we sometimes do, uh, uh, just getting, falling down rabbit holes um, on YouTube and, 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 and Google, uh, looking into haunted houses. I was just, I wasn't sort of researching a novel or anything. I was just kind of killing time. And I stumbled upon Jane Pierce, who is Franklin Pierce's, the president Pierce's first lady, his wife. And she had written letters in her time in the White House that were addressed to her most recently deceased son who had his death happened just weeks before moving into the white house in a freak. He was the sole fatality in a freak train derailment. And she wrote these letters to Benny, her son pleading with him to come back to her. And according to her letters, he did in material form that he he came back to life in the White House. She, he visited her in her bedroom. She spoke with him. So Interesting. as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, I pushed everything aside. I was like, this is, <laughs> this is the novel I have to write. Yes. And uh, so it was pure accident. Fascinating. And I, could you share with us maybe a couple other incidents from the White House's history, which strike you as being uh, unusual or perhaps paranormal? Well, here's, here's you know, so one from, from, from earlier, maybe more contemporary one. So the um, in the Taft administration, President William Taft in 1911. Um, so you have the Pierces in the in the ni- in the uh, 1800s. Their son Benny, as mentioned, uh, returned to material form in the White House according to the written documents of Jane Pierce, the First Lady. Jump ahead to the Taft administration, and there were multiple sightings over those intervening decades of an adolescent boy a ghoulish adolescent boy was terrifying to the people who witnessed him. Basically the same age, 11 years old as Benny uh, Pierce, who sort of took on the nickname of the thing. Many people saw the thing. I saw the thing. Staff would say I saw the thing. So much so, it became so acute that Taft issued an official memo 
saying no one will ever speak of the thing again. We will not sit, we will not, you know, we will not speak of this. So there is a president, uh, you know, issuing a directive, ordering people to not talk about a ghoulish figure who had seen, been seen there multiple times. Jumping into the sort of the, to more present day, there is an interview, uh, an interview recently given by a former uh, Secret Service agent who had a colleague who issued, this is sort of, you know, was, was, was quieted down at the time or, or, or uh, you know, um, not given a lot of attention in, in any sort of official publication, but he testified that there was a Secret Service agent who was so terrified in the basement encountering something in the basement of the White House that he discharged his weapon. He thought oh. that there was something coming at him. Yeah. And there was nobody there. So this wasn't just something like I saw a shadow. This was a you know, highly trained, cool as ice Secret Service agent protecting the White House who sh- took a shot at something that he saw in the basement. That is incredible. I, and I had absolutely yeah. no idea. And I, I suspect most people don't. No, yeah, there's a whole, there's a continuity of, of similar kind of accounts and, and stories. I mean, a lot of famous buildings have, you know, haunted stories, it's, sure. it, but I would say that the White House, because it's a place that is very official and it's also very secretive by its very nature, the fact that we know so much about uh, these accounts, I think lends testimony to the possibility that there, there's a lot that we don't know because it's, you know, it's so contained. When uh, Truman, Harry Truman, was uh, working in secret on the order to develop and deploy the atomic bomb in the Second World War, he was, by his own letters, again, these are official presidential documents, he was visited by the sound of scratching and voices at his White House office door as he was working on this, the orders of deployment. So, um, he firmly believed that the White House was haunted, but there might, there's a case to be made that there was a supernatural interest in either the promotion of or warnings against nuclear technology as, as, as deployed as weapons. Oh, absolutely. I mean, contactee literature for the following three decades, four decades, is littered with warnings about nuclear technology. So there's... Um yeah, there, yeah, I mean, this is something that ordinarily I wouldn't discuss on the show, but I, I think it's it's worth uh, pursuing. There is a passage in Oliver Stone's, uh, I believe it's The Untold History of the United States, or A Secret History of the United States, something like that. But it's it's from the tail gunner of the Enola Gay. And he describes seeing the mushroom cloud and what it, what it looked like in color. And it was it was a really interesting read because he, he described the mushroom cloud as possessing colors he had never before observed. And he actually didn't know how to describe. And it made me think of, and this is, this is pretty far out there, but you know, it, it made me think that all these warnings, which came in the wake of this, if we didn't somehow in our, in our diabolical human way, discover a way to destroy not only our world, but maybe others that exist alongside it. And I, I always wondered if what, what he saw that day in that conflagration was maybe Maybe the burning of, of things um, as yet not understood. Yeah. Oh, well, you're inviting. I, I won't. I won't go there. But yes, you're inviting uh, discussion of a topic of like interdimensionality and the the possibility of other universes that other universes that exist. You know, hugged up against us, separated by an invisible membrane. That yes, maybe something as cataclysmic as an explosion of that kind could, as you suggest. Um, 
you know, break with great violence, that otherwise sort of tenuous membrane. And I think, Steve, I think that's a great segue into some of the research you did for Father of Lies, because talk about another world separated from ours by only the thinnest of membranes. Some of the things you wrote about in the afterward for your complete series publication, which I, I read recently, were both incredible and chilling. And I wonder if you can maybe talk about that a little bit. It's funny because it's one of those things where I did, I did a decent amount of research on it, and I don't know how many people realize like what I did for the research. Right. Um, and uh, while I was doing that research, I kept it from pretty much pretty much everybody except for, you know, David Sodergren, who is kind of my right hand man for, you know, kicking my butt into gear for editing and stuff like that. And then at one point I got caught by my wife, um, which we've been together forever. We have no secrets or anything, but I was keeping this from her because I didn't really want her to see kind of what some of the chat looked like and some of the sure. weird photos that were being shared. And it was one of those ones where she was like, Oh, can I, you know, can I pop on your phone to uh, check out something on this app or, you know, it was just one of those random things. And I was like, Oh, absolutely. Like, no worries. And, you know, maybe I went and had a shower or something. And when I came out, she's just like, my phone was on the table and she was giving me a weird look. And I was like, Oh, what's going on? And she was like, what, like, what, what are you doing on, on that website there? And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I'll explain some of this to you when our son's not around. But um, yeah, it was, um, like I know Andrew's done a lot of research on paranormal and near-death experiences and returning and stuff like that. But for this, it was more focused on the cosmic chaos gods. So there's a pretty brutal cult out there that believes that everything was based off of chaos, which a lot of people actually do have that that similar um, thought process. But they um, they believe wholeheartedly that if you do certain steps in a certain way, which hence is the idea of the ritual, you will be able to open up this portal to the, to the black heavens. And from that, you know, your soul will live in immortality in this, in this, this world of gray ash, essentially. And so, you know, it was one of those ones where I was trying to do some research on, on specifically a cult. And I went down the road of the, really black metal band dissection and right. uh, their singer, John, you know, by all accounts was uh, not a great person for some of his beliefs. And he started, he was one of the people who kind of co-started this, this cult who uh, they've, they've changed a little bit over the years, but still just as brutal. And I figured the best way to really get to the bottom of this is to kind of go as far down that rabbit hole as I could. So you know, through Instagram, I ended up connecting with a singer from a band who had very close ties to dissection and he would only answer a few questions. And from that, he then suggested I go check out this, this link. He sent me a link. The link looked really weird to me. So I didn't want to click on it because as we know, constantly we get links you shouldn't click on your phone. Sure. Um, but it was, it was one of those ones where I, I kind of Googled the link because it was a weird link and it, and it turned out that it was a, a link to a, a chat on a dark website. So I had to uh, go down the, you know, getting a Tor browser and going to this chat and being accepted by them. So I was, I guess, officially a member of the cult for about four years. And oh, it was wow. something, again, where I don't really speak a lot about it because it's one of those ones where you, when you say that 
there's a lot of immediate thoughts that jump into people's minds and um, I'm balding. I, I typically have uh, a pretty shaved head. So I'm a, a large white guy with tattoos and a shaved head. And when you mention anything about being in a, a cult that does have some horrible, horrible, deplorable thought processes about other people, there's just that, that immediate repulsiveness that people think about. Sure. Um, and I can assure you, I don't agree with any of, any of their, uh, their beliefs towards others, but it was one of those things where I was like, you know what, I'm, I guess the old saying, you know, in for a penny in for a pound. And I wanted to see how far I could take it and how far they'd, they'd let me take it without doing some of the more grotesque events that they wanted. And, and for me personally, I think it worked out really well for the afterward. I started writing it and about kind of how, I think some of those experiences has fundamentally changed me for some things, but I found that as I started to write that, I almost needed to maybe not write it and actually see a therapist. <laughs> so, sure, because um, uh, it's it's a different world than just the fictional account that you write when um, you know people wholeheartedly believe that if they cut off the leg of a rabbit and stitch it to their forearm, that it'll come back and, and it'll be a usable leg on their forearm and you know, that was something that happened. I want to say I saw it about a dozen times from different members really? who were trying to actively connect. And I mean, the, the goal is, is one of the, um, and um, uh, you probably are both familiar with the, uh, the god Abaddon or Abaddon, traditionally portrayed as kind of this demon with, you know, uh, uh, goat legs or goat lower half and hooves. And so for them, the idea to connect with that, that, that God who, you know, is, is, is floating around in this, this celestial body above us somewhere in order to connect to him, to that God and have that portal open, you need to be part of an animal as well. And it's interesting because some of them go as far as, and I don't know the exact term, but I, I'm going to say it's a dermal implant where, you sure. know, they're actively trying, they're trying to grow horns out of their head to connect with the God and so for a lot of that, that stuff, you can pass by as being, you know, a body modification. Um, but it was, it was the more extreme, more extreme stuff where it's a very fascinating exercise in people watching of seeing what they will do to try to complete this ritual. No doubt. And, and you mentioned, as I recall in the afterward, that there was at least one person who passed or who you believe passed from uh, in related infection following one of these procedures. Yeah. And again, a lot of the stuff is, you don't know if people are just kind of messing around with you when they're message when they're, they're posting this stuff and doing this stuff. But when, when that, when, a, when you can actively see on there, the users that are active, kind of like how we could now we can see who's active it, on those ones, it would say how long it's been since somebody has been active. And, you know, these were people who, you know, for instance, um, and again, I think this, the, the world of dissection is probably a world Andrew's not too familiar with. I don't know if you're a big black metal fan, but uh, John, you know, he, he took his own life and their belief is that, yes, he took his own life here, but he had completed the ritual. And by doing that, he, he, he never actually died, that he lives in this other portal plane you know, for the rest of time and that he, you know, checked all those boxes, you know, it's kind of a, a, a weird, a weird way of looking at it. But when somebody doesn't show up, a lot of them, instead of being like, Oh, Mike passed away, he was in a car accident, you know, for them, it's, 
we all need to celebrate user 432 because they've completed all of the, the steps of the ritual and they have ascended. But at the same time, they died because they tried putting a piece of an animal on them and they got an infection and they wouldn't do anything about it because they wanted to collect or to, to um, uh, you know, get all of those boxes ticked. And, and a lot of it does remind me, and it's, it's a weird thing, but you look at um, Jim Henson, right? His religious beliefs ultimately led him not to get treatment for, um, it was pneumonia, I believe, correct, that he passed away from. But, you know, it's the same idea is that they wholeheartedly believe that, you know, they're just a vessel here. They're going to another plane. I don't care if I'm feeling ill, I'm about to ascend. And that, and that's where, you know, they get to that point. That's, it, it's almost unfathomable. I mean, I recognize these worlds exist, but at the same time, to put myself in that mindset is, is almost impossible. The black metal thing actually reminds me just briefly of a story because I think most people, when they think of black metal and war metal and these kinds of things, I think most people consider it, if they consider it at all, outside of the scene, they consider it a bit of a, a bit of theater. But I remember going to see Blasphemy in Vancouver in, I think it was March 2017. Are you familiar with Blasphemy, Steve? Yeah, not, not a huge fan, but I know who they are. Sure. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan either. I, a friend <laughs> of mine invited me over and Andrew, for, for, for you and for our listeners who don't know, Blasphemy are a Vancouver-based war metal group who I believe are very popular in the 80s and 90s, or possibly just the 90s. But they went dormant for a while, came back, and uh, they have you know names like Black and Black Winds and, and things like this. It's, you know, again, walking into it, I thought, okay, this is a, a bit comical. But I have never, and I've seen a lot of live shows, and I've seen a lot of metal shows, I've never experienced anything like being in the audience with those fellows on stage. And I would never, after the, after seeing that, I would never make fun of them for their names or their dress because I have never felt to be, to be honest, folks, dark energy pouring off a stage the way I did when I watched those guys perform in Vancouver. It was in fact so bad. I shouldn't say bad. It was so powerful that I, I was in the rickshaw theater, which is a fairly small venue. I had to go all the way to the back in order to feel comfortable. And another one of my friends who is, we'll say energetically sensitive, she actually lost consciousness, just passed out and ended up seeking medical attention. And she was, she was fine. There was absolutely nothing physically wrong with her, but the, the fury of that show was such, and of those, what those guys do and what they have done was such that it just, it just really just fried her completely. And I never thought such a thing was possible. So that, that was a real education. And when you talked about dissection and, and how this sort of led you while researching Father of Lies down that path, I, I wasn't very much surprised. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting because, um, Andrew, you did a, was it a question and answer you did with a, a, a release of John Milton's Paradise Lost? Was that what it was? It could be. It was like an ebook release for, it was kind of promoting the demonologist as well. And I think within that interview, you had said something along the lines of like, you never really liked the poem but there was imagery within there that really stuck with you. And, and, you know, going back to, to research for the demonologist, you know, you were like, oh, I need to read this like horribly long poem that I hate, but I need to be an expert on it because this is what my character is an expert on. And, and that's kind of the same idea as how I felt was that, you know, I'm looking at this, this, this demon stuff and just trying to wrap my head around 
the religious fanaticalism that it was and trying to have that connection with it, but also that detachment of using it purely for research when at the same time it's, it was utterly fascinating. So Andrew, I'm on that subject that I'm curious because obviously with the demonologist and with, with uh, the residents, you've done a lot of research into the occult, into the paranormal. And so I'm curious, did that help inform the work that went into Oracle? Because obviously Oracle is about a psychic investigator who has the unfortunate knowledge of the moments before the events occurred. And I'm I'm just kind of curious how that looking into those worlds, if that informed the perspective of the main character, Nate Russo. Yes, very much so. I mean, I've always sort of like been interested or or wondering about a way to write a a crime novel Um, because I, I like mysteries and I like, you know, I like conventional thrillers, but I find if they're just, pure realism they're kind of um i want something more or i'm interested in something more right. or what was let me put it another way i wasn't interested in writing a conventional crime novel so again and i kind of like you know bumping around and research and i i i encountered someone who was a, a psychic who had done work with the fbi and in a unofficial slash official way, you know, she, she worked, these agents wouldn't deny that she worked with them, but she wasn't on the payroll. Right. And I sought her out and I spoke to her on the phone a couple of times. And um, she was just a sort of a a very interesting person. And I took that, 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 that I became fascinated with the idea of someone who was very grounded. She was not, you know, a, a superstitious or fantastically interested person. She, her view actually was that, we could all be psychic if we shed ourselves of all the things that prevent us from vision. But right. I married that to the idea of, well, look, if you can sort of see into, see through that membrane again, as Nate Russo, my hero can, you're not, it's not always going to be directed in a way that you want it to be. You're going to see sure. things that you don't want to see. You're going to be like the people in Steve's, you know, the, the, the cult members who are, you know, presumably their faith wasn't purely uh, manufactured through a charming leader. They believed probably that they witnessed things. They've seen the magic. They, they know what it can do. Right. Yeah. I, I wanted to kind of basically meld a crime novel with a horror novel just to kind of see in my kind of, I, I love hybrids. I love kind of peanut and, and and chocolate, you know, peanut butter and chocolate being smashed together, or Absolutely. I, I love those kind of collisions of genres. And so, um, so, but yeah, it was an opportunity to write a crime novel, but in a, in a way that kind of indulged my interest in the supernatural at the same time. Right. In 2015, I attended a conference down in New Orleans for the uh, International Remote Viewing Association, and I met some of their some of the remote viewers, and one of them was Pam Coronado, who has also done some work with law enforcement. But as you say, always. Um, I don't know if hers was quite as uh, secretive. I feel like she may have had a TV show at one point, but it was it was fascinating because you're talking about something that I think to most of the people listening is woo at best. But I saw demonstrations of it. I participated in demonstrations of it. It works. So it's not as much a case of figuring out, uh, well, does this thing work? It's, well, how? Yeah. Well, there's a little thing that this woman taught me. I, I, I regret not being able to remember her name off the top of my head, but she did this thing where she said, look, when you try reading someone and by reading someone, just sort of, like, hey, you know, just think of something, really sort of focus on it for a moment 
and I'll try to guess what you're thinking about. You know, real barroom, silly test. Right. And I watch, and her thing was like, always go with the first inclination, just sort of empty your mind. And when you, when you, as soon as you sort of like decide to start, don't second guess. Don't say like, oh, is it, was that a rabbit? Was I just thinking a rabbit? Cause someone said a rabbit before. Like, don't do all that stuff that we would normally do to kind of try to guess what you're thinking of. Just right. literally open your mind. And what's the first thing you, that comes from? And I, for a while, I would sort of like try this, you know, I'd, I'd sort of, I'd be the guy at a dinner party and be like, Hey, okay, now I'm going to read your mind. And I don't claim to have any special gift, but it was kind of remarkable how often I could get either nail it or get pretty close. Like whether it's a name or a color or something like it's kind of, it's kind of wild. And the key, the key is as simple as don't get in the way of it. It's not a skill as much as like paring away all the things that prevent you from having this innate skill. Right. Uh, Yeah. I remember years ago I was chucking luggage for this ferry company here in town, uh, back after the financial crash, I was just doing whatever I could. And I, was talking to this one woman who I just checked her bags and her, her a boat wasn't for a little while yet. And she was waiting for a phone call, I think. And so she asked me, you know, how would she know if someone was calling for her? And I said, oh, well, we'll call your name. You know, we'll call Mr. And I, I remember the name distinctly. I said, Mr. Beetlebaum, come to, come to reception. And she gave me this look and I thought I'd done something wrong. And I said, are you, I'm sorry, what's, what's wrong? And she said, Beetlebaum is the name of my cat who just died. How did you know that? And I mean, wow. <laughs> I just picked it out of the air, but it's a very, and you could argue it's a coincidence and I'm sure there are skeptics in the audience who would, but it's one hell of a coincidence. Yeah. No, it, 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 it really happens all the time. And there's, of course, people have stories of like, no, that was the moment I called my sister. I hadn't spoke to her in four years. Sure. And it was at that moment when, you know, our, our, our father died or, you know, those kind of, you know, every family has those stories. I happen to, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I believe, I, I, I belief is sort of just something overstated or, or, or it, it implies conviction, but I think there's something to it. I don't know what it is, but it happens with such frequency and such universal occurrences that there is something to it. There must be. Yeah. And, and Steve, to that end, I recall you saying that there was a piece of footage in your research, which you, pardon me, which you came across in your research that seemed to you at, at least at the time to be at least maybe believable in terms of what it presented. And you fictionalized it for the, for, I believe it was, was that ritual or communion? Uh, I can't remember. Uh, one of the three, <laughs> I, I don't feel so bad not remembering that if you can't remember, <laughs> I think it was for communion. I'm pretty sure. But I wonder but, if you um, could describe that. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those ones where, um, uh, so for those who uh, don't know or who are squeamish and don't want to maybe read the book, um, this isn't much of a spoiler, but the whole point of the cult to get to the point of ascending was to do everything that um, the the main woman uh, essentially suggested to them. And uh, she, you know, she was referred to as mother or as black dragon or mother dragon, which if you're familiar uh, um, with, dissection especially their um ryan chaos album that entire album the lyrics are specifically designed that if you uh, you know essentially sing along to the lyrics and you do it at a certain time in a certain place you will ascend you'll call forth the black dragon and you will ascend Interesting. and that was one of the big things that john 
Novotnyed. I don't know. I'm probably messing up his last name. Um, that was one of his big things, right? Was he was writing this album to get a commercialized release so that essentially every fan in the world that listened to this album almost kind of like the playing the record backwards, you know, you're, you're calling for this black dragon. So in the cult, she was kind of the head. And then there was these two other males who could have been her lovers, could have been her sons, could have been, you know, I, I honestly don't know, but they like to do incredibly depraved things with each other. And, and it was at this one time where they were, there were some people who were growing more antsy or more, um, not so much questioning, but almost like a, like we've done all this stuff. Why aren't we, why aren't we seeing more proof of this? Right. And, uh, and that was when they, they played this little grainy clip that um, it's one of those ones where, you know, if you saw it on YouTube, you would be like, okay, like this is just horrible. But the fact of the matter for me, at least the reason I kind of believe most of what I saw. And again, I'm, I think I'm in the same boat of, of Andrew as I think there's stuff out there, but I don't fully know if I believe hundred percent in it, but essentially, and, and I don't, I don't know if this is a PJ PG 13 show or not. Not at all. Um, uh, so uh, the video is taken in this slum of a place that they, they lived in. I don't know if they were squatters. I don't know, you know, really what their thing was, but they didn't, uh, Whenever photos or videos were shared from where they were, it was you would think they lived on like the downtown east side right. in Vancouver, and um, so they were they were uh, performing a sexual act with what some people refer to as doggy style. And while this was happening, the the other person was videotaping them. So there's the three of them there, and at some point, the the woman is kind of reaching out towards the corner, and as she's reaching out to this corner you know, a pretty intense dark shape kind of starts to appear and something kind of reaches forward towards her and she reaches her hand out. And, you know, as soon as their fingers touch, just kind of boom, the video ends. So, you know, they showed the video, there was some stills of it. And the annoying part about it is because of using Tor and on the dark web and all that stuff in the encryption, I couldn't screenshot any of this stuff. It was stuff right. that I would like love to have. Right. So I would, I would always be, you know, frantically taking notes and, and just trying to remember as much as I could. But I remember I was watching that and I was actually out on the couch here and, and, you know, my wife and son were asleep and I would usually wait for them to go to sleep. And I'd spend kind of an hour, hour and a half kind of catching up and stuff. And, you know, my wife would always be like, Oh, what are you doing out there? You just probably thinking I was looking at porn or something. <laughs> And I would, I'd always tell her I was stretching because I have a really bad hip from my uh, um, athletic days. Um, but the truth was I was in a cult. And, uh, and I remember I, I, I audibly made a noise that woke her up. It was one of those ones where, you know, it was like, a, like, like, fuck, like, you know, something like that. Because right. it, to me, in that moment, that was 100% a video that I couldn't, my mind couldn't say it was faked. Now, when I think back to it, could it have been quite possibly? Um, I mean, right. even if you live in a, in, in slum and you know, you can do a lot of stuff just with apps you can download and stuff like that. Sure. But that was convincing enough to me, at least that, and to the others that they were like, okay, like things are progressing. Like, like there is this other place to do it. And that was one of the, the scenes that I knew I had to put in 
into this to kind of personally give it authenticity to me because a lot of it when you read it you're like okay this guy's making this stuff up blah 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 but like everything that that father does within this trilogy that stuff that was either discussed or little clips of stuff was shown you know um cutting parts of their uh, thighs off in strips that have to match how many chaos gods that they said that they've uh, you know uh, appeased and stuff like that so really again it's just it's just this inner desire of them to do whatever they can to make the people happy to to ascend that um you know it, to me that's more unnerving really than than a lot of you know the stuff that you see because it just shows how far people will go yeah absolutely and so where did you leave it with them at what where at what point in the process were they when you finally decided you know what i need to walk away from this i've i've learned as much as i can well i mean I, I had finished what I thought was the arc of the characters in, in the series and I left it for a bit. And then I went back about a month after I was done and the numbers had definitely dwindled. So I don't know if that was people either were put off by seeing some of the stuff or if, you know, they made maybe they got in something wrong and they were um, incarcerated or they were ill or anything like that, because, you know, at one point to 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 get you to continue to be involved, they would give you like a list of three things you had to do. And you had to do one of them. If you didn't, then you wouldn't get the links for the next time to 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 join again, right? To, to chat. And you know, I'm not gonna do anything. Like one of them was, you know, uh, film yourself randomly hitting somebody walking down the street. And you know, so like a lot of it's kind of um, I guess that was something that was quite popular on TikTok too for a bit, right? Oh, okay. um, these like the, the challenges and stuff. So they they would get you to do these things. And I was like, like I'm a 40 year old guy. I'm not doing this crap. Like, like come <laughs> yeah. on now. Um, but um, but they would do it. And so for me, it got to that point where I just I had to step away from it, knowing I had everything I needed research wise. And then when I went back, a lot of them had had kind of whittled away, and I can't see myself ever going back to look. Like I, it would be hard, I think, for me to find where it is. And and this is something maybe Andrew had saw, but I did get a random message on Twitter from a guy who used the same name as one of the uh, main people from the cult. He'd sent me this really kind of creepy message. I'm assuming it was a he, and it just said along the lines of, you know, you've made you've made father proud, and you know we we appreciate the research you've done, type of a thing. And and it was like, you know, the message came, and I saw it, and I sent it to to my buddy David, and I was just like, I don't know if it's actually them or somebody, some like teen in their basement playing a trick on me, but they have the language really down well for how they would chat and everything. So, so I don't know, maybe they, they, they were happy I did it. I don't know, but yeah. Wow. I, I suppose it's better to have them on your side than not, but yeah, uh, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, I'm curious in the research you've done uh, for these various topics, have you ever sort of bumped up against anything where you thought, you know what? I don't know if I need to know more about this. Yeah, I, I do. Like, for example, I don't, I'm pretty conservative with what I personally involve myself in. So I would not personally go to a psychic. I never have. I wouldn't. Interesting. Um, I would not play with it. And I certainly forbid my children from playing with a Ouija board or anything, any sure. kind of summoning mechanism. But the, the only, you know, fortunately, I have really, I don't really have much 
personal experience with what I would say, you know, I don't have a ghost story or, um, but I've had a lot of dozens of interviews with people who are very intelligent, educated, professional, reasonable, sober people who, who have and shared with me uh, remarkable stories. There's only one incident that was to me kind of weird and kind of felt like a pushback of a kind was when I was writing the demonologist the protagonist is a father who's searching for his daughter, who he believes, no one else believes, but he believes has been a, a, a abducted by a demon. And so he must, you know, find her in this kind of following these, this bread, these breadcrumb clues. And so at one point there was a scene I was working on one day that involved the brother, the young brother of the protagonist, when they were little kids, he drowned in a river. We always knew he drowned in the river, but this was a scene where he comes to realize that his father, his father, possessed by a demon, was the one who drowned his brother. So his brother wasn't, it wasn't an accidental drowning, it was a right. murder. So it was a very involving scene, very emotional, very dark and, and uh, uh, upsetting. And that night, my daughter, who was kind of the inspiration for the daughter in the book, she was at that time maybe you know, five years old or, or something like that. And she had a really bad dream. She had a, like a screaming nightmare. And I went to her room and I, I stayed the night with her to comfort her. And she, she oh, got wow. to, you know, eventually she got to sleep. But the next morning I asked her, you know, what was your, you had a really bad dream last night. What was your dream about? And she thought about it. She said, daddy, who is the, who is the boy in the river? Oh. And I had, I had not, naturally, I had not shared with her anything about the book. Uh, about a boy in a river or dying or, but she, she, it was like, it was almost like the way she phrased it was both a very specific, a boy in the river that made her very, very afraid on the same day I was writing about that. But also it was almost like it, the idea came from elsewhere. The way she kind of was like, Hmm, daddy, who's the boy in the river? Like, uh, like a, almost a third party were making this communication with her. It, and it was quite, it was strange and, and upsetting. And I, and uh, it just reinforced my personal sense that I don't, I write about these things and I'm fascinated by them and I research them, but I, like, I would never go on a ghost hunt. I don't participate in any of those things. Not just because they would, those things would be scary to me, which they would be. Right. But uh, I take them seriously enough to not, I, to not play with them. Sure. Um, and on, in that vein, I mean, I interviewed years ago, the author, oh, Jamie Davis Whitmer, I believe was her name. She was the author of America's, America's Haunted Hotel. This is back when we used to do interviews on Ghost Story Guys. And she'd written two books, the last of which was America's Haunted Hotels, I believe it was called. And she was actually reluctant to do the interview. And I didn't understand why. I thought it was because we were, a, at the time, a relatively new and unproven show. But it was actually because she had stopped writing books on that subject. Because after writing The Most Haunted Hotels, she had an experience while on a, some kind of tour, a ghost tour of something like that, or an investigation, something along these lines. But something started terrorizing her in her home when her husband was away. You know, he was, I believe, a commercial pilot to the degree where she would have nightmares and she would wake up and every light in the house, which had been off, was now on. And events like this eventually just, it, it put her off the subject completely. And it is again, I think a great reminder that, yeah, that, you know, when you, uh, when you start looking, sometimes you find, and it doesn't matter what it is you're looking for. And I think yeah. because, because this is such a, 
and the subject is so, I'm trying to think of the word. It, it's so hard to, to see and to be part of in our everyday life, you know, because I think it exists in, in the dark corners and in the subtle spaces that people treat it as pure entertainment. And while I would say 95% of the time it is, in fact, pure entertainment, I think there is that 5% that exists behind, uh, you know, behind the walls of the internet, so to speak, and, and in the corners of our vision, which is very aware and, and very, um, very interested in the people who get close. Yeah, it's true. just as an addendum to that quickly, you know, there's a, a um, basically a theological academic text that I read in researching the demonologist that argued that there's a reason why every major world religion, they have a different God or deity or leader or uh, a prophet, but they all have demons. Right. And the reason for that, he argued, is that it's because they're real. They are uh, ancient beings that have always walked alongside humankind. And so you can maybe quibble about, well, is this part real? Is this parable real? Or is this story in the Bible, for example, to be taken literally or metaphorically? But demons are always, as you say, alert to finding ways into our lives. And so it's not an accident that when you look into possessions and people who have been afflicted demonically, there are often people who at that time in their lives, there was a disruption, a divorce, uh, addiction, a particularly difficult moment of depression. That there's, those are not blameworthy things, by the way. I don't sure. say that. I just mean that there's a, a, there's a, the door opens. And sometimes when you open the door voluntarily, as you say, you know, uh, something unwanted comes in. Absolutely. And I mean, that's a wonderful note to end on, but before we do, I, I actually, one, there's, we haven't talked about uh, Steve's new book, which I would love to touch on. And, okay. um, <laughs> before we do though, I think it's, I, it's, I should have brought this up at the beginning as to how you two came to know each other. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, on my end, cause obviously, um, I knew who Andrew was before he knew who I was. Sure. Um, and it's, it's interesting cause it was one of those things where I've interviewed Andrew yourself a few times, but I, this is the first time I'm on something, uh, kind of, uh, and I, I, I even hate to say the term alongside, um, because, uh, it just, it's surreal to me in that sense. But, um, as you know, Brendan, uh, you know, I came from a really, 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 really small town. A lot of people don't, a lot of people can't comprehend the smallness of the town that I came from (laughs) In that, usually if you go into your local Walmart or sometimes a McDonald's, there's more people there than that were in the town I grew up in. You know, Burton, BC, they, they just did their census and they had a 25% growth recently and they now have just over 100 people. So, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a boom there, I guess, right now. But so my introduction to, to reading darker works was obviously, like a lot of people, Stephen King. And... Uh, I never really went beyond that. I never really explored beyond that um, because, you know, he has so much work out and, and why would I? And being from a small town, you know, you don't have a lot of, of access to, to other stuff. And so it was when I was living in the lower mainland, actually, that um, and, and Andrew, I probably said this story to you, too. So apologize. Um, but me and Amanda, my wife, went to a Walmart one time and lo and behold, I always looked at the the two for 15 paperbacks. and sitting there was the demonologist right beside the troop from Nick Cutter, AKA Craig Davidson. And, um, I was like, Oh man, like, like what, like, what is this book? Like, who's this guy? This is crazy. It was, um, I still have that, that cover that book over there actually with, um, 
uh, you know, the girl standing on it with the trees. And back then I, I took a photo of it because I was like, oh, you know, I, I want to get this book, but I'm, we won't grab it right now. No worries. And I annoyed my wife enough talking about how awesome that book would be that by the time we got home to our apartment, she told me to go back and actually just buy it because she didn't want to hear about it anymore. Um, and what really blew my mind was that, you know, this guy of this book of this crazy, like, you know, book that I devoured was Canadian, you know, like that was unheard of. You don't, you, there's not Canadian dark fiction writers or horror writers. Like there's just, and to have, you know, international bestseller there and New York times bestseller, like my mind like exploded. Um, and so, you know, I started to read all of, all of Andrew's work and, I think we're probably about five years ago now, six years ago now, I would always see people go on and on about their favorite authors. And one day I was just like, why the hell does nobody ever post about my favorite author? I would see posts about your Andrew's work and, and I just didn't get it because there's, there's this fantastic bibliography of books that'll keep you up reading late into the night. And I was just like, you know what, this is, this is BS. I'm, I'm going to start telling people how much I love this man's work. And so I just started doing that. And it was one of those ones that it progressed from that to being, you know, let's do a month where I celebrate Piper mania, right? Cause you know, it's, let's do it in the month of May. That works great <laughs> for, for advertising. And I remember it was probably, gee, I don't know, maybe six months after I started following you on Twitter, I had that notification, Andrew Piper is following you. And I was like, holy, like, this is real. Like, he, he just followed me on Twitter. I can't believe it. And so it was just from that where me being, again, this guy from this super small town who doesn't really have barriers and is, you know, the biggest extroverted introvert, I was like, yo, I'm going to send him a message on Twitter. Like, that's what, well, I'll just do that. And so I sent him a message and to my utter surprise, he replied and I've just kind of been bothering him since then. And, uh, and it, and it just, it got to the point where um, I just realized how much, how much work he has out there, but not only just in the English language as well. And so I started documenting it on the computer and, you know, my wife's always somebody who pushes me about stuff. And she was like, why don't you make a website about it? And I said, I don't think I can do that. I have to get clearance for that. And I remembered I, I emailed um, somebody, I think, was your, I think your publicist, I emailed them and they never, I didn't get a reply back and that is not like no, no offense or anything there. I was just like, Oh, Hey, like, you know, I don't know if you see me posting about Andrew every single day of the week. And, you know, I'd love to do this and, and kind of category catalog everything. And like a couple of weeks went by and there was no reply and I was like, Oh, whatever. And then Amanda of course was like, why don't you just message Andrew and ask? So I messaged Andrew and asked and, and that's just been it. It's just been, you know, um, I've said it before in interviews, so many key moments in my life that at points where things haven't been great or have been low, one of your books has always been there at that time. And it's always kind of helped me get through those periods. And I know, I know people are going to jump on this and just keep going with the misery thing that uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the Annie uh, complex that everybody loves. But that's the reality of it is that time and time again, when something you know, uh, we talk about pushback from somewhere else. Here's, here's Andrew's work coming into it. Um, and this is something I, I, I honestly, I don't know if I've even mentioned this to you before, Andrew, but like when, when my son was born, 
him and Amanda, they both, they both passed away. Um, they were both gone for about five minutes and, uh, leading up to that while I was in the room and right before things kind of went south, I was, I was reading the wildfire season and, uh, the, the nurse at the time was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, she's, she's not dilating. It's taking forever. You might as well read. She's going to have a nap. And I was like, okay. So I like cracked it open, started reading it. And, and she was like, Oh, what are you reading? And I was like, Oh yeah. And she's like, Oh, I have, of course, Andrew Piper. And, um, and then it was like, and that was when like, you know, everything suddenly went south and I was like, Oh man. And then that was the one, the one thing I didn't actually pack. Cause they were like, we need to take her to the, um, uh, the ER, like right away. We need to do the surgery. You need to come sign these papers. You need to tell me if, because, you know, Oren wasn't technically alive yet. Can we donate everything from him? All this stuff. And, oh, wow. um, and so I, I was rapidly packing all this stuff and I left the book on the counter and it was the next day a nurse came and she was like, Oh, like, yeah, you're, you're the Andrew Piper fan. Right. Cause you know, there's the book there. And I was like, like, thank you so much. Like, it was just one of those surreal moments where, you know, like I said, things, the, the books keep coming and coming in and out and randomly in my life. And, you know, that's, that's really what it's been about. It's just this love of your work. And, and thankfully, or, you know, amazingly through this, we've developed this crazy friendship that, um, you know, me, means the world to me. I know, again, I'm, I'm getting all gushy and everything, but, uh, um, so that, that's how it came about. And then to, to work that into Mastodon, um, I took a writing course with, with you. I'm going to get confused now, maybe two summers ago, last summer, two summers ago. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think so. And it was one of those ones where like, I had never done a writing course before I, I, you know, I, I did some stuff in university and everything, but it came up and I was like, man, this is a perfect time because of COVID we can do it online. And, and I get to, to kind of, have you critique a few things? And I had three novels I was working on at the time and I was stuck on all of them. And so one of them was Mastodon. And again, it was just, it was almost that, uh, you know, what would Andrew do in, in parts of it, of, of your, your um, uh, key things for having your story flow and everything, you know, really helped me click things together to get that book kind of going. And then again, my wife, I was raving about this book and I was like, Oh, I should get some people to blurb it, but I don't know who. And she was like, Oh, I don't you just message Andrew. Uh, you know, like, it's not like he's got anything going on. You, you just message, you know, um, you know, the guy you consider the biggest celebrity in the world, just message him. So yeah, it was just, uh, it was just one of those things where um, I took a lot of my growing up in the middle of nowhere. And then my love of, secretive government craziness and uh, kind of threw it together and really um, brought in my, I, I call it like my Canadian Island of Dr. Moreau, where it was just kind of, <laughs> um, you know, this in, insane world out in the middle of nowhere. But um, yeah, it's one of those ones where again, Kismet and that Andrew played a unofficial big official role in, in getting this book from pen to page to print, I guess we'll call it. That's very cool. I, uh, I guess that was a long version. <laughs> I love that. I, I had not heard that story that, that, oh my God, Steve, I didn't did know that story about your wife and your son. Oh. That's uh man. Oh man. I'm glad it turned out, man. Yeah, it was, uh, definitely a longer conversation at another time, but you know, and to throw this out there then, you know, 
I obviously had some significant PTSD from that. And being a voracious reader, I needing to co-sleep with my son. Can't really read a book when you have a newborn sleeping on you or beside you. So then my wife's like, why don't you get a Kindle? And at first I was like, no, e-reader is bad. Like, no, I need like the book. And then it was like a couple months went by and I was like, God, like I, I need to read something, but I can't like, so then it was like, she bought me a Kindle. And then what was the first book I needed to get? The wildfire season, because I'm halfway through the book. I need to finish this thing. Like, so then, yeah, so that's, that's the, uh, that was the first official book on my Kindle that's actually sitting beside me right now was, was your wildfire season. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I think that's one of the, one of the most wonderful parts about being a creator is that you, you will sometimes find that your work has, has helped people in, or, or has been part of people's lives in a way that because the act of creation is typically so uh, singular, so, so, you know, focused and, and sort of, uh, I won't say lonely, but basically, you know, done, done alone. It's sometimes perhaps hard to imagine that being out there in the world. So when you hear things like that, uh, that, that must be, uh, that must be pretty great. I can't, I just, uh, I can't imagine. Oh, I no, I, it's, um, uh, it's astonishing. It, it, it's surprising. And I don't mean this, uh, in a stagey way, but I, I, it feels, uh, I don't feel deserving of it. And, but, um, no, absolutely. You know, it's not a matter for me anyway, it's not a matter of, of feeling every confident every day in doing what we do for the reason that you just said, Brandon, you know, it is very solitary and you can have, maybe if you're lucky, you can have accolades, maybe make a few bucks, maybe you make a living. Um, but more often than not, there's, self-doubt and wondering sure. what, what the hell am I even, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And um, so, you know, friendships and those relationships with, with people like Steve is, is uh, quite literally means everything. Very cool. Well, gentlemen, I have to say, I'm glad you're both out there, putting in the work, fighting the good fight, because uh, certainly I, I appreciate both of your works and, and just the fact that again, we got Canadians out there writing horror fiction. I will also shout out to past guest, Mike Thorne, who is also from, he might actually be from Edmonton and he is a, another Calgary. horror Canadian horror author. Yeah. Mike, Mike was from Calgary. Calgary. There we go. Thank you. So, um, gents, I, I, I could honestly keep talking to you for hours, but I, I should bring it in for a landing. Where can everyone find you online? Well, me, I'm, I'm, I have a website. If you sort of like, just sort of uh, want basic information, it's andrewpiper.com. But I'm most active in my ranting and raving on Twitter. I think my handle is at andrewpiper. It is indeed. I have just followed you. <laughs> and Steve. I have a website too. Uh, it's uh, stevesreadauthor.wordpress.com. Simply because I've been too lazy to upgrade to the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, knock.wordpress.com. Fair. And, uh, I'm pretty, I'd say I'm, I'm most active on Twitter at Steve Stred, but then I'm also, you know, Instagram and, um, uh, Facebook, the same thing. And then, uh, if you're looking for more info on Andrew, I also, uh, um, facilitate the uh, official Andrew Piper archives, uh, .ca, which is, uh, or actually it's the Andrew Piper archives .ca, but it's the official one. Cause Andrew said it was, so I'm, I'm always having fun there too, uh, updating and, and going through everything there. Fantastic. So you'll find links to all those things in the show notes. Gentlemen, my guests, Steve Stred and Andrew Piper. Thank you so, so much for being here. Thanks, Brennan. Yes, thank you. And that's the ball game. 
Don't forget to check the show notes for links to both Steve and Andrew's social media presence, as well as their websites and respective Amazon stores. They're both fantastic people to chat to. Make sure to follow them on social media. Speaking of social media, if you want to come say hi to me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, both as Largely the Truth. And of course, if you want to hear more from me, I also co-host the Ghost Story Guys podcast with Paul Bestel. You can find that at ghoststorygues.com or wherever. Find podcasts live. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm also now co-hosting the YouTube live stream Weird Together with Dr. Joseph Camo. You can find that via the Ghost Story Guys YouTube channel, as I mentioned, and there will be a link to that in the show notes. Thanks again to my guests Andrew Piper and Steve Strad for taking the time to sit down with me tonight. Thanks also to Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.